0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. Listeners know that we explore many realms of the human journey, and some of our podcasts, including some of my favorites, delve into wisdom traditions, sometimes ancient writings or teachings that arise from a variety of backgrounds, sources that help us to focus on truths that really matter. And a lot of this boils down to connecting to something bigger than ourselves, to see that we're all part of some mysterious river of meaning, that the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. When I can get calm and touch that inner place of quietude, it points me homeward. Thank you. This Humankind special project, The Power of Nonviolence, is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by a major grant from the Henry Luce Foundation.
1: You know, I'm, I'm devastated. with I can't stand what I participated in, what I did personally. And I say, okay, so where do we go from here? Is my life over? Or do we keep going? And what can I do to make it better? Veterans
0: reconcile their own moral conscience with what they witnessed and did in war. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. (music) Decisions about war and peace churn up complicated moral questions, especially for soldiers. They bear the heavy burden of carrying out orders that can determine who lives or dies. Theologian Rita Nakashima Brock, based in Fort Worth, Texas, comes from a military family and has studied how soldiers work through conflicts about their military service.
2: I have a a person I've talked to who was an Air Force pilot who served during the Cold War. He He wasn't in any hot war. He never actually dropped any bombs on people. But he was in during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was a B-52 bomber pilot. So for an entire month during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the entire B-52 fleet was in the air, fully loaded with nuclear weapons.
0: President John F. Kennedy in an address from the White House, October 22, 1962.
3: It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union.
2: And so he flew around for a month waiting for DEFCON 1. We were at DEFCON 2. He was flying around thinking he was going to have to blow up Russia, and his family and his country might not be there when he got home, if he survived. 40 years later, he is experiencing an enormous amount of anguish about who he was at 23. But he was reading books on God and evil and all kinds of things, trying to figure it out.
0: The Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 induced an existential crisis. For the first time, the world confronted a real possibility that the United States and Soviet Union would unleash their terrifying arsenals of nuclear Armageddon. And sometimes the actions of soldiers in war produce immediate tragedy. In the Vietnam War, Bill Simon served on an American aircraft in 1969 and 70. He still wrestles with what happened one day.
3: I received some treatment for this. When you go through that, they ask you to pick the most painful event to focus on. So I picked this event. And what happened was uh, the, the, we took off from July, then we were going to Da Nang for, for maintenance on the aircraft. So I was with the aircraft. But we were just flying, and we passed this garden. There were um, a young Vietnamese man and probably his wife, I don't know, and their two kids. Two kids looked like they were probably under the age of uh, seven. And they were in the garden just doing their own thing, and they weren't even concerned about us. We flew over fairly low. They didn't even look up. They just kept hoeing and, and doing what they were doing. And um, about 15 minutes later, we get a call. This, this uh, guy is a bomber, and he had a loaded bomber, and, and, and he wanted to drop his ordnance somewhere, didn't want to take it back. Suddenly, the, the pilot thinks, yeah, we, we, we have a target for you, and he called in a, a, basically a bombing for that garden where those people were. We called it in, we got out of the way. Bombs were dropped. We came back, and, and we basically just, you know, kind of vaporized them. There was you couldn't even see what was there—just big holes—and and that was really disturbing to, for me to to see. And I and I completely denied that for 40 years, probably. This is fairly recent that I did this this type of therapy. And um, when I did the therapy, I, I kept remembering more and more details of the event which I had completely repressed because at some level what happened with that young family was very disturbing for me yeah but I couldn't de- deal with it I, I just had to uh, you know deny it and, and go numb when I was a young man I was sent to a far-off country the fight
4: or I still don't understand I was proud to go to serve
0: for my country in the place they call South Vietnam. The experience of deep regret for actions taken in war has come to be known as moral injury, when soldiers participate in activity that violates their conscience. In her book, Soul Repair, Recovering from Moral Injury, Rita Nakashima-Brock, who teaches at Bright Divinity School, tells of many veterans who are tormented by the violence they saw and sometimes perpetrated.
2: Some people can kill under orders and um, come to terms with that as what they did their job, and um, and they can integrate that as then they may not feel very good about it, but, but they did what they were asked to do. Other people... Um, respond by feeling like that some line that made them a moral person was crossed and they they no longer feel like they're good. Just being capable of killing someone or doing something that crosses a major moral boundary. I'm not talking about kind of normal things we sort of feel guilty about and we go and apologize, but things that are... Uh, huge taboos in a culture. Killing in most civilian cultures is regarded as criminal activity. It makes you a bad person. So when you're regularly exposed to those kind of alternative conditions where you're trained to do it, I mean, it isn't that they suddenly wind up killing without any preparation. And the military training is quite efficient and good at that. Uh, And in fact, they're taught to shoot without thinking about it, because if you think you're too slow... But that doesn't mean you don't think about it afterward.
0: If you think you're too slow.
2: Yes. Thinking slows down behavior. Uh,
0: Is that one of the purposes of thinking?
2: Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> so you can talk to like a very well-trained athlete and their training as such that they learn to do things without thinking because if you have to think, can I make this turn on the ski run, you've already missed the turn. So, your body just knows what to do your whole body system, your senses, and your muscles from repeat training and that's how they train troops to shoot they sh- they train them to shoot on reflex. It's called reflexive fire training, and it can be life saving if you don't if you're if you're stopping to think about whether you should or should not shoot in a situation where you're under fire, um, you may may get yourself killed or you may um. Feel worse because your friend died and you didn't act fast enough. You can throw people into hell, into horrible, horrible things that wreck people, and their moral consciences won't let them go. That they still are capable of feeling terrible about it instead of just saying, well, oh, well, no big deal. That To me, that's that's a presence of a humanity in a person that is indestructible.
0: And that suggests to me the way out of this trap. Exactly.
2: The only person who can't have moral injury is a sociopath.
0: Some soldiers accept horrible incidents as the unavoidably high human cost of military conflict. Others, on coming face-to-face with atrocities, resolve to oppose warfare because the price it exacts is too great.
2: It is a crisis of faith, and... That, that's one of the hard parts of moral injury is your whole meaning system can collapse.
0: And questions of morality and meaning, of responsibility for my own actions in this universe, are hard for anyone, especially young soldiers mostly trying to
1: stay alive. It's my opinion. I have many of them, but I think the term that there are no atheists in the foxholes is one of the stupidest things I've ever said in the history of the world.
0: Travis Weiner, who served in
1: the U.S. 101st Airborne Infantry Regiment in Iraq. In a way, that means that when I got blown up and lived and someone else got blown up or shot and died, it was in some way, somehow, supposed to happen. I just can't accept that. Um, You know, I got a piece of metal in my neck in between my spine from a mortar that, you know, the docs told me, it's tiny and it's small and you're totally fine. You know, fraction of a millimeter up, down, left, or right could have been paralyzed is that is that just pure mathematical chance or is that supposed to happen I mean it's you know how do you approach that question the way I approach it is I say to myself okay if all of this is total randomness and zeros and ones and who lives and who dies that emotionally the reaction for people and this ties back to religion in larger society is it's almost incapacitating it's so it's so devastating and so terrible you know the whole like nothing after we die thing that most people just can't accept it and I have the same reaction everybody else does but then when I I don't stop there I say okay I'm having that reaction but does that make it true it's war I mean it's (laughs) some people get hit some people don't it's math it's numbers that's it that's all it is and and look I I respect uh, all veterans and there are some combat veterans face way worse than I do have a totally different opinion Um, you know and I respect that
2: It raises all kinds of questions about God and evil. If God is a benevolent God and is all-powerful, how can these terrible things happen?
0: Theologian Rita Nakashima Brock.
2: I mean, that's a that's a classic framing in, in theology when you have an all-powerful God who's supposed to also be loving. And then you pray that your best friend isn't going to die and they get shot and killed. Uh, or you accidentally kill somebody on your own side. Um, your faith in the that power of goodness can collapse completely, and your faith in your own goodness.
5: Part of your faith is that you hope, you know, God's never going to give you more than you can handle on your own.
2: Kyle
0: of the New Hampshire National Guard, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan.
5: And if he does, he's there with you. I mean, everybody's seen the posters, you know, look back, and there's two sets of footsteps, because I was always there with you. Or, But it's true. I mean, if you feel that you're alone outside of your, you know, normal relationships with other people, and then all you have to rely on is that, I mean, you gotta re- just gotta relinquish yourself to it. You've gotta say that, hey, you know, I've made it this far. Somebody's either helping me carry the load, or they thought I could handle it.
0: And when you feel moments of being overwhelmed by the burden, by the memories, by the residual
5: reactions,
0: are you able to release it to a higher power?
5: Sometimes it's easier than others, but yeah, I can. I have. You just have to reach the point where you say, me worrying about this, I can't have an effect on this. I'm not going to let it consume me. And that's when you just have to say that this one's on God. It's going to come out. He's got a plan for it. Stand by. (laughs) (laughs) And does that noticeably lighten the burden? Sometimes it's easier to digest than others, but... Sometimes you gotta fake it till you make it, and remind yourself and keep saying it, and, and reinforce that fact to yourself. There's a plan, and uh, you're not alone.
0: You're listening to the Power of Nonviolence, a special project from HumanKind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more about this documentary, Healing the Trauma of War, to obtain audio copies or downloads of our series, and to hear more on moral injury, please visit humanmedia.org. A human being is deeply shaken by viewing extreme violence and its effects. Most of us would be unprepared for the emotional aftershocks. The kind of brutality witnessed in a war zone seems to cut to a person's core. Manny Salazar, a former policeman now living in Washington, served in Iraq and later at an American tactical base in Helmand, Afghanistan, where he was a counterintelligence agent. He returned to the States in 2015 and is coping with PTSD.
6: I got back and I still dealt with it. I didn't talk to anyone for a good two and a half, three months. I literally, I was suffering with the migraines as a result of PTSD and the sleep deprivation. Migraines can be paralyzing. Absolutely. I mean, look where I'm at. If you can, I've left a 4,000 square foot home to come live in a, looks like a shelter slash war room. I got vision boards. I've got... My surveillance system set up, so I'm still very much in uh, deployment mode, but, uh, you know, I'm working through these things step by step. I was struggling to get back to the person that everyone knew me as I was, both in my civilian career and my military career. I don't know how many times I went up to the VA on the third floor and looked at the mental health services and walked there and then walked right back out. In fact, I had scheduled several appointments and never showed up. Because at that point, for me, what I was thinking was, once I cross the ledge it's done. My career's over. And I very much wanted to be in the fight. What I'm hearing is that you were in a fight right then and there. Oh, I was definitely in a fight. And, you know, I knew it. I was staying up all night. I was not talking to my kids, my family. I wasn't calling back. My, you know, folks that I talked to, I was isolating myself.
0: Now living alone, Manny sometimes gets together with other veterans who've come back. They celebrate having survived. But Manny continues to struggle with haunting memories from the tough scenes he saw in Afghanistan, including fellow soldiers who died before his eyes. And he recalls interactions
6: with some of the civilians. Relationships that I had built out of town, folks that I trusted, Afghan locals that I trusted, that I worked with, would come and ask me, you know, I had a child that was burned, six-month-old child that was burned, come to the gate and needed some help. And we couldn't provide the help. I had to turn her away, even though I knew that I had a staff fully capable of providing some kind of aid. Uh, at the time, the medical rules of engagement did not allow us to uh, care for and take care of kids, even though I know everyone wanted to do it. But those rules were set up and we had to follow them.
0: And this shows another kind of moral injury, not from perpetrating an action that violates conscience, but from a soldier's regret at being unable to prevent one.
7: It is among the last things they will talk about.
0: Reverend Carol Ramsey Lucas is a member of the chaplain service at the VA Medical Center in Washington, D.C.
7: Sometimes veterans will circle around a whole lot of care for very specific physical reasons, and they have plenty of traumatic situations to talk about, but they'll avoid this one, this where they did something or didn't stop something from happening or witnessed something. But really, that's the core of all the physical symptoms, and they circle around it for a long time.
0: Because it's so painful. It's so painful. It's guilt
7: and shame, um, feeling of disconnect from God.
6: Yeah, I mean, absolutely, you're going and you're watching some of the worst horrors that that are known and and, and you ask yourself, you know, if there's a God out there, how can he allow this, this stuff to happen? Don't pick it up. In the film
0: American Sniper, a young boy in Iraq struggles to pick up a heavy rocket launcher from the street. An American soldier perched on a nearby rooftop spots the boy through the scope of his powerful rifle, fearing he may have to shoot the child.
7: People are blowing up trucks or or children are coming at you with bombs and and there's a question of having to act quickly. You know, do I... Is this person coming at me to, to take this... to steal a car or are they coming at me with a bomb? And so decisions veterans are making decisions about who lives and who dies
0: you mean like do I shoot that child right and how does somebody make that decision
7: sometimes very quickly Um, and I think that's part of the issue is that in in combat things move very fast very quickly and decisions are made and it all makes sense in that context because the line of decision making is very different who tells who what to do is different and then when you get home and you look back and like who am I that person who decided this other person needed to die
8: there's red white and blue in the rafters. and there's silent
3: Did they say when they shipped you away to fight somebody's Hollywood?
0: Veteran Manny Salazar in Washington.
6: I'm at Walter Reed. I volunteer, and I do a lot of outreach. And you look at some of these folks, these amputees and these guys struggling, and the amount of veterans that commit suicide on a daily basis, and you ask yourself, if there's a God out there, how can you allow this type of suffering?
0: The question that pervades so much anguish in our world. And even in the face of man's inhumanity to man, people of faith draw strength and solace from a higher power but reacting to tragedy can be complicated.
4: A lot of anger sometimes, a lot of wrestling, wrestling.
0: Reverend Cheryl Jones, also with the VA Chaplain Service in Washington.
4: So I always believe that God is right there with us in the suffering, weeping with us, carrying us through, um, trying to lead us through, but that God is with us wherever we are. So yes, I get angry. I get upset. You'll hear stories that'll break your heart. And my heart is broken um, many times. But then I have to heal. And I've healed through not only exercise and yoga, but talking to my colleagues, um, writing about it, doing music about it. But I always believe God is with us in the suffering. And God is the one that is um, helping us make meaning of it. You know, I turn to scriptures um, all through the psalms, those lament uh, psalms, where are you, God? You know, I, I find comfort in that somebody else is asking these same questions. I'm not alone uh, with these questions. I haven't given up that, you know, there is no God. I, I haven't gone to that.
0: But even for the most fervent believers, a layer of mystery always surrounds the presence of God. Perhaps the divine can be found in little things, simple human gestures of kindness that can comfort others in distress, and self-mercy that can help us come to peace ourselves. Daniel Libby is a readjustment counselor at the Oakland, California Vet Center and executive director of the Veterans Yoga Project.
8: If you feel like you're this horrible person, you know, I've worked with a lot of men and women who, uh, you know, they're not terrible people. They're not horrible people, right? Even some of the men and women that I've worked with who have done some horrible things, right? they're not horrible people, yet they feel like horrible people. But they're not horrible people because what do they do is they isolate themselves. Part of the reason they isolate themselves is because they don't want to hurt anybody else, right? Which, to me, reveals like, that they're not horrible people because they really don't want to harm anybody else.
0: But counselors emphasize that recovery lies in being available for connection, in opening up and reaching out.
8: One patient I'm thinking about in particular that I was working with recently that was sort of his way, he can sit with it if he brings God into it, right, and lets God, you know, hold it with him. He can sit with it. He can can sit with the pain. So he needn't flee or push back at that moment right right and so instead of like having this pain you know sort of anxiety and instead he's going to go home and and isolate himself um, now maybe he can use that and still come to an event and still connect with other people you can have that painful you know memory and still continue to live in line with your values and goals
4: i'm thinking of my heritage my african-american heritage and uh the struggles the suffering Uh, the stories, the experiences.
0: Reverend Cheryl Jones.
4: And I believe that, that, you know, there is a higher calling. There is a spirit uh, that has been and a spiritual entity that has been with that struggle, with my heritage. Um, You know, they say African people um, do not doubt the existence of God. Now, we certainly have had horrible experiences on this side of earth but still that that spiritual entity I believe lives within lives within me and has guided us to this point I just strongly believe now you know what to call it sometimes is it is it of the Christian faith is it of you know these particular religions is that all um no I don't believe that's all um I'm I love the stories of Jesus, but I respect other stories and other faiths and other spiritual um, leanings. So, but the presence of a spirit, of a, um, a guiding force, a higher power, I don't think I've ever doubted that.
1: Devastated with. I can't stand what I participated in, what I did personally, what I largely participated in. I say, okay, so where do we go from here? Iraq veteran Travis Weiner. Is my life over? Do we keep going? And what can I do to make it better? You know, I'm going to help other vets. I'm going to help, you know, Iraqi, you know, refugees. I'm go- and I'm going to speak truth to power. And is it going to prevent, speak truth about the wars? Is it going to prevent the next one? Probably not. But at least you tried. At some point, and of course, with ISIS and everything going on, I, I want to go back there and do some humanitarian work. Um, what would that look like? I want to farm over there. You know, one thing I always think about: all the houses we uh, we hit, every you know villager, largely a lot of them are subsistence farmers. They have cows, donkeys, and they have crops, and they farm, and they're dirt poor, and that's what they do. And every time we got intelligence about you know supposedly this insurgent lived here, we would just land you know Chinooks or Blackhawks and just trample their entire farm fields kill their crops you know certainly not gonna you know the brass is not gonna not do it just be you know who cares about their crops you know this is war blah 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 but what does that do uh you know to them what does that do to the larger hearts and minds you know and I just think about that my, my mom's actually a farmer and I used to uh, uh she's a small farmer again a farmer I used to help her on the farm growing up and uh when I was you know in college and everything and I used to just think you know again there's absolutely nothing to stop an alternative scenario of that being my mom and it being her village and, you know, come and put her in zip cuffs and trample her farm field. Why? Because that country's there and we're here and we're more powerful and they're not. It's all the same.
0: You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart-Rose. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck and to HCI for permission to use Delmer Presley's song, Where Were You?, part of the book 30 Days with My Father by Crystal Presley. The program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media.
4: You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Moral
0: Injury, part of our project The Power of Nonviolence, is Humankind Program number 249.
4: The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.